Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. In this episode of the Cato podcast, I have asked my delightful co-host, Brent Stratton, our demonstration response chair, Adam, and our newly appointed board member and member of the team leader cadre, Christopher Jenny, the only person I know that has two first names that has not been to jail. So we want to talk about sound doctrine, and we're going to talk about chapter two in sound doctrine, crisis and conflict. The affair is hanging on the hinge, a Latin proverb. So I'm going to tell you as you listen to uh, our points of view on this, for those of you that haven't read Sound Doctrine, you should. And there's a lot of meat on this bone in each chapter. And so it's very hard. There's no fluff. So it's very hard not to drill down into these concepts uh, and, and just apply them because there's no extra stuff in here. So we're going to do our best to kind of give you the highlights of things we think are important in the book. But in reality, the point of this exercise is so you can listen to some of our takeaways from Sound Doctrine, but in the end, you should read it because it it breaks down these principles and and how we can manage conflict and, and make better choices. That being said, we're talking about tactical decisions, right? And uh, talking about interventions. So what do you guys take away from uh, chapter two? Uh, starts off talking about the characteristics of a crisis, something that we go over in team leader and commander. The definition is an emotional, stressful event or situation involving an impending, impending abrupt and decisive change. While we all have a natural tendency to view a crisis as bad, a crisis is more precisely defined as a situation that may turn out bad. So that's a great thing to remember in this crisis situation, right? This might turn out bad. But they're really, really, it's an opportunity, right? And uh, I got that speech more than once from the colonel. Hey, this looks like a, a negative, but in this crisis, there's an opportunity. And then usually he would colonel me into doing something that I wasn't going to volunteer for. So thank you, sir, for that. What else do you guys take away from that? What are the, Let's talk about the, the types of crisis that we're talking about. Well, kind of, Marcus, one of the things that... Um that sticks out for me is when you continue on, it says that these type of events almost never get better by themselves and some type of intervention is necessary, right? That's pretty common sense. That's why we would have these tactical events. But some of the notes that I've written to myself is when we're we're talking about this, it says even with an intervention, the outcome is never entirely certain. And for me, it's a hard pill to swallow is that it's no guarantee that we're going to be the ones to make the situation better. It's obviously our hope um, to be able to do these type of things. But, you know, as we continue on with this, there's a, there's a component where one of the things that uh, Sid talks about is that the suspect gets a vote and these type of things, right? So we're working to be able to impact these things positively, but um, it's a, that, that's a tough, tough component with, with the things that we're, that, uh, that we're faced with here. So, having the three types of natural mechanical and conflict are um, critical. And I think oftentimes tactical officers focus on conflict and the adversarial component, but I know in your neck of the woods, you dealt a lot with some natural issues that were 
every bit, if not more significant than anything else um, you may have faced in your career. So uh, is this something that, that came into play for you at all? Yeah, I would say in my career, we didn't really focus on natural disasters too much. And we just showed up and kept the uh, people from driving over the heroes hoses provided, you know, traffic and stuff like that until uh, we had some major fires and we realized we better get better at, at dealing with this stuff. And like Chris and I like to point out for uh, those of you in the fire service that listen, this is what separates us from firemen, right? We, our adversary is trying to outmaneuver us. So it's very easy for us to think all tactical problems involve an adversary, but they don't, right? We have the natural disasters. Chris, Chris actually had an earthquake in, uh, in his town, dropped some buildings, had to do, uh, you know, some uh, emergency deployments of people, figure out where they could drive, where they couldn't drive, all the stuff that, that goes on with having an earthquake. Uh, recently, Adamstown had a tsunami warning, which uh, seemed a little bit overkill from what I understand, but you never know, right? So we got to be prepared to deal with that. And then most of us in the state have uh, dealt with some kind of fire uh, in all of our counties. Bakersfield routinely deals with the air quality that really is only second to China itself. That could be considered a problem if they didn't have you know, the chromosomes that really helped and the genetics helped them filter through that pollution. I don't trust air that I can't see, man. That's the Bakersfield PD motto. It should be on the bottom of one of their cars. Don't trust air you can't see. That's a quote from Crimson Tide, by the way. (laughs) So, by the way, Brent, that's the very first thing I highlighted. Crises tend to be relatively short-lived. They almost never get better by themselves. So standing around, and hoping that it gets better is, is going to we're going to re- be required to intervene in some level. Uh, Chris, tell us a little bit about your experiences with the three types of crisis and why you think it's important that we know the differences. Well, so with the natural uh, crises, those incidents, uh, fires and floods, there's generally some warning uh, coming with those. Uh, especially, well, we both experienced some pretty fast moving fires that started in the middle of the night, but they're usually not done in the first few hours. They last uh, sometimes for days. So you have to anticipate the need for, uh, you know, relocation, evacuations, uh, being able to effectively uh, evacuate a large volume of people while bringing in resources. Um, All these pieces are competing for the same uh, limited real estate uh, when you're dealing with those types of events. Uh, earthquakes, little to no warning, they happen and you have to deal with it. And it's, uh, you know, one of those things that uh, tempo um, is uh, an important factor. You know, earthquake during the day, middle of the week, uh, is going to have a different effect in your community than a uh, earthquake that occurs at night. Uh, because if you're people on the road, uh, don't necessarily have the same ability to assess all the damage uh, that's occurred uh, really to the infrastructure, but it in many ways shrinks your problem uh, when these things don't happen, like in the middle of a work day or a school day, or we don't have to deal with those types of evacuations and those problems. Uh, the other thing with the natural disasters is it could be an intense thunderstorm or a wind event, and you collapse a tent at a wedding or a stage at a concert, and now you have one of these uh, natural type crises. 
and you're going to have, uh, you know, evacuations and rescues that are going on simultaneously. It's going to involve uh, some type of unified command and they're going to be rapidly evolving and the information is going to be conflicting. So uh, we have these issues ongoing. We don't give a lot of thought to it, but I think that's one of the great things uh, about sound doctrine is this is one of the more routine type of events that we have that we do manage. Uh, and so we do have the repetitions and we have built some of these skills. Uh, we just have to refine it so that we're a little bit better uh, with our adversarial conflicts. Yeah, and we didn't uh, talk a lot about mechanical, but your mechanical crises or your airplane crashes, major traffic accidents. Uh, for those of you that are deputies listening, traffic accidents, I believe you refer to those as handovers. Is that what they call them? Yep, all PHP. Yeah, so... Uh, for our it, brothers. It, yeah, mechanical or human errors, plane, train, uh, automobile accidents. You can have a bridge or building collapse, hazmat spills or uh, mechanical events. Um, you think uh, Florida a few years back, they had a um, ped bridge that collapsed in the middle of the day right next to the university. Those, those are mechanical events. And again, those happen. Uh, we're usually in a unified command with fire and dealing with the scope of that. Some of them do have uh, criminal investigations that take place. Uh, certainly if it involves an aircraft, if you guys have ever had the uh, experience of an aircraft accident in your jurisdiction, you know that uh, both FAA and NTSB are involved and uh, in a lot of ways it's completely their scene. Uh, as soon as all the first aid and uh, immediate care is done, it's uh, lock it down for those folks to come in, but those all pose uh, emerging uh, management and leadership issues. And then last, excuse me, lastly, what separates us from firemen is the adversarial, right? Those are our barricades, our snipers, our felony suspects. For those of you that are newer to law enforcement in California, a felony is something that we used to send people to prison for. And Sid goes on to talk a little bit in Sound Doctor, and he, and he calls the last type, the adversarial type, a special type of crisis because it's a conflict. And I really like that difference, right? The, the first two aren't conflicts. Now, we might, we might cause our own friction and have conflicts in our response, but it's the adversary that makes it a conflict, right? It's the adversary who has decided to... Uh, go against societal norms or break the law that has done something to cause law enforcement intervention. And that's the clash between wills, right? The will of the commander, the person in charge of this tactical response and, and our adversary and how we deal with that. So I think he really sets the foundation for the principles of decision-making. Any, any thoughts on that? I think it's important to, to note, and I, we touched on a little bit earlier, that, that Sid talks about how the future is plural, right? These are, this is a venture kind of profession, and we're seeing the evolution of that where we're walking away from scenarios that we wouldn't have walked away from 10 years ago, five years ago. Um, so it's a test of wills, but sometimes our will, it just isn't there. You know, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, so to speak. So the future is plural. This is a choose-your-own-adventure. Sometimes we choose to walk away and the situation does, does resolve itself better than it would have if we tried to intervene and enforce a tactical resolution. 
So it's important to know that's part of that strategy, right? It's important to know what fights to get involved in and what fights to walk away from. And that's that's a big part, I think, of the role of the commander. But as we stay focused, uh, particularly here on adversarial conflict and you know the choose-your-own-adventure aspect, the most difficult and frustrating part for those of us in this space is, again, quote directly from the text, is decisions are always going to be made on incomplete, inaccurate, or even contradictory information. And that is that is one of the most frustrating aspects of navigating crisis, I think. Agreed. And what you're talking about is the, you, you made a reference to when we are going to intercede and when we're not. And society defines when that happens. And right now we're redefining some of those things that we used to respond to that we don't. And we may walk away, right? Like, like you said. And that's that kind of sliding scale of lawful intervention. So is the way we have to intervene match what we're trying to fix? Or are we going to cause more damage and more problems by intervening? Well, and again, we, we often define this, and this is going to get into later chapters where we talk about end state, end state and what does success look like? Right? Does success look like we save the hostage and the bad guy goes to jail? Well, that's one end state. Is it we all get to retire and move out to Coeur d'Alene and Bozeman, Montana on our 350 pensions and everything else is secondary? Well, for some commanders and some departments, some administrators, that's certainly you know, an option. And that's really why what we do in Bakersfield may differ than what we do in Los Angeles, may differ than what we do in Santa Rosa. And so this is really unique to everybody's jurisdiction, their departments and their priorities and what success looks like from event to an event. And I think that's a great strength for uh, American law enforcement. Now it comes with some trade-offs and some weaknesses, but a, a national police model like we see in Europe doesn't do that. And they're, they're unable by structure to change their response based upon the community that they serve, that what they want. And so while it's challenging and hard, it, uh, it's kind of what makes that social contract between our communities work. So practically speaking to, to that, Marcus, that requires us as professionals to be aware not only of what's happening in front of us, but that requires us to understand a little bit of the perspective of our supervisors, of our community, of the district attorney. Like you said, it's different everywhere you go. So how do you how do you work through that? You're unable to work through any of those things unless you are familiar with what that looks like in your jurisdiction. So I'd encourage those of you who are listening to take it a step further. It's, it's one thing to, to understand the tactics. We hope that you're reading important books like Sound Doctrine, which are gonna talk about the principles that are out there. But again, it's the application and what that looks like for you. And that's something that you're gonna to have to be dedicated to, to learning within your own agency and within uh, your own jurisdiction. Absolutely. Chris, do you have something to say? You mentioned friction uh, a little bit ago, and that's one of the important factors. I mean, not only do you have the opposing will of your adversary or that suspect or suspects, but you have the friction that occurs um, between people and processes. And it's generally you know, your people, the, the officers that are responding from your agency can be neighboring agencies, um, but that friction resists all action. 
And the agencies that have uh, smoother responses, uh, not only do they have, well, it doesn't necessarily uh, depend on more repetitions, but they have lessons learned or they've practiced. Um, there's lots of examples in the active action reports that are available of, uh, you know, more successful resolutions that have less friction. And usually that hinges on, uh, you know, practice and having learned lessons from previous events. And there's even more examples in the after action reports of um, events that don't go well at all. Uh, and that friction is a key component. You have to work at mitigating friction and that's all pre-incident preparation. I like that you brought that up because basically Adam introduced one of the, the five common characteristics of a crisis. And, and that's kind of what you guys are building on right now. So Adam talked about uh, uh, always a lack of reliable information and what is available, usually incomplete, ambiguous, and sometimes even conflicting. That's what Adam brought up. That's the first characteristic. Chris, you brought up friction. And if you look at these high-performing teams, you'll see that they have very little friction other than what the suspect introduces. And the more I study kind of my own shop and what I've done or haven't done and failed to do, the more I realize that we induce so much of our own friction due to lack of preparation, uh, lack of understanding these friction points. And they're all pre-event things that are easily solvable. And if you look at almost every single after action report ever written, indiscriminate parking is in the top three. And that's the easiest one to solve. But we spend less than 10% of our careers going to these major crises. So we get away with it, the other 90 plus percent. And so you don't get to pick when you go to that one, when you're going to need an ambulance or a bear cat to come in and save your life. So you park jacked up. Uh, just as a, a simple example of friction. But the friction could be not just moving your people and your equipment and communication, which are, I would say, the probably the top three examples of communication, but friction could be the politics in your agency. Could anything that resists your ability to maneuver and deploy your folks. And it depends on what rank you're at, what that friction looks like. With your uh, indiscriminate parking, like not only does it hamper the initial response, but those vehicles that get stuck inside the crime scene, they're usually running. They sit there with the lights on until they're out of gas and the batteries die. And then when everything's done, you've got to come jump those cars and bring gas and try and get them moved out of there. It, it's just, it's like a, the, the gift that keeps giving uh, with that problem. It's completely preventable. Uh, for those keeping track at home, uh, the first characteristic of a crisis is uncertainty. So Adam was talking about uncertainty and that's what we've been talking about. Uh, another component within uncertainty is that fog, and that's the you know ambiguity, the conflicting nature of the information. Uh, it's a term that's you know been around for a little bit, and unfortunately, how it's I often see it presented is folks are going to use that as an excuse for less preparation. They're going to go, well, there's going to be fog, you know, when the event happens, and so we aren't going to know for sure. We're just going to have to evaluate what happens. Uh, but we, if you study these events, you know they're going to follow a particular sequence. And if you kind of, you know, um, 
parallel that with your ICS priorities, you can match uh, more of the unknowns with very um, deliberate actions that are going to help you get to a uh, resolution quicker. So fog is going to be present. It's not an excuse or a crutch. Uh, know that it's going to create that uncertainty and you just have to be able to make decisions uh, even though it's present. Yeah, and and I would say to jump on that even a little bit more, especially when I was younger or newer, I see less experienced people really struggle with the fog because they're not comfortable with it. I need to know more. I need to know more. I need to know more. We always need to know more. And then there's a certain level of experience I think you get where you're like, I'm not going to, you know, you stop arguing with yourself to try to get more because you can look at what's important and make the, the best decision with the information you have at the time and being able to determine which is information, which is intelligence and make those choices. Right. And the quote about fog is decisions will always be made based on incomplete, inaccurate, or even contradictory information. One of the most pervasive attributes of these situations and is described by a concept called fog. You're not going to have the whole situation full situational awareness, right? So not, not in the time that you need. You're either going to get all the information that's going to be too late, right? Like time is not going to be. How many active shooters have there been where the report is always multiple suspects or a suspect wearing a law enforcement uniform in an adjacent location? Um, that, that creates fog. And it affects decision-making early on in the event until there are sufficient resources to deal with these um, you know, potential issues. And a lot of that is offset. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, go ahead. I was going to say a lot of that is offset with a bias towards action. Now, General Mattis talks about this. We've heard Colin Powell talk about this, where, where they both say, you know, an 80% solution now is better than a 100% or 95% solution in 20 minutes, in an hour, in two hours. And that bias towards action, certainly if we have enough information based upon our experience, certainly the, the concept of the coup d'oil, right? The strike of the eye based on your training, experience, knowledge. When that starts feeding into it, we generally know what to do. We just don't want to get vapor locked because we don't have more. Sometimes it's a proper decision to delay our response, right? That's a tactical decision. But a lot of times, if we just start the train rolling, we're going to have a better chance of success or at least getting our, our pieces on the chessboard in a position sooner rather than waiting and waiting and waiting. And we saw this as a great example in, in Orlando at the, uh, the Pulse nightclub shooting where the lieutenant who was on scene, Scott Smith, was the watch commander for the city. And he was also the SWAT commander. And he makes entry with an entry team and ends up engaging the suspect. That actually delays, if I remember correctly, a full activation of the SWAT team about 15 minutes from the outset of the incident. I'm not saying that he made the right decision or the wrong decision, Remember, these are choose-your-own-adventure sort of engagements, right? So if you remain the incident commander and you're saying, hey, we need to activate SWAT, we need to activate negotiations, maybe call for mutual aid, you get that into play 15 minutes sooner or rolling 15 minutes sooner, certainly in the middle of the night, that may change the landscape to our advantage rather than waiting to activate it 15, 20, 40 minutes into the game. This is also true in demonstrations. We saw this in the Capitol on January 6th. We've seen this in um, incidents around the country where jurisdictions waited for mutual aid, waited to call mutual aid because they're like, eh, we're not there yet. 
we need more information. We don't have enough information. And to activate mutual aid and to get that response takes between one and two hours before they go on scene and we can stack them up into squads and then we start deploying them. Whereas if you're like, eh, this doesn't look good, let's push the button now. And if we don't need them, we can call them off or cancel them. This is where that fog and that uncertainty and that need by us as law enforcement want that certainty. That's where you get that friction, right? Because if we have those resources sooner, we can do more with them. We can impose the will of the commander sooner or more effectively. If we wait, then the suspect or the adversary maintains the initiative for a longer period of time. And that puts us at a disadvantage. And I know we'll get to the initiative as one of the, the five aspects in a minute. You know, and you bring up some compelling examples when you reference commanders who have a bias for action. But it, the uh, inverse of that is also true that you're going to see uh, commanders who are waiting um, when it says, that, you know, this makes uh, certainty impossible. We're all also aware of uh, managers or executives who are oftentimes um, promoted and trained to be risk managers and without the proper information. Uh, or they're wanting to have more information can breed inaction um, and you lose uh, some of the opportunities to be able to, to act as well. And I know we're going to, we're going to get into initiative and, and some of those things, but it's, it, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of middle ground uh, between, uh, between those two. We, at least in my experience, it seems like there's one end of the spectrum or, or the other when, um, when you start getting into to a command level. So it's, it's good to be aware of, of both extremes. And that's a perfect segue into the second characteristic, which is risk. It's inherent in every tactical situation. It can involve physical, emotional, professional harm. There's always organizational risk. It could be a loss of assets, equipment, or prestige. And you know, all these events, there's risk present. And it's some of the stuff that, that Brent and Adam just talked about. And I think one of the important things for those in leadership positions that are listening is you have to acknowledge that it's going to be present, uh, but it can't hinder your decision-making. You have to keep the momentum going uh, in the correct direction and you have to keep making decisions. Yeah. And, you know, we, we talk about risk mitigation all the time, right. In every other aspect. And, and uh, thanks to Gordon Graham, it's at the forefront of all of our thoughts. We're all risk managers, right. And he's absolutely right. But we have to be careful to think that we can make risk go away because we can't. We can mitigate it by manipulating time and terrain, but we can't make it go away. And for leaders that don't often deal with these type of conflicts, it can be overwhelming to think, uh, uh, I, can't, I can't make this go away. This could cost me my career. This could... You know, I could make the wrong decision and someone could get hurt or killed, but no, no decision is also a decision. So I think it's good to talk about it's never possible to make all risks go away, right? There's always going to be risk. That's the nature of our job. And then uh, Sid goes on to talk a little bit about aggravating that lack of information is the uncontrollable element of chance. So chance consists of turns of events that cannot be reasonably foreseen over which we or the adversary have no control. We often call that Murphy's Law. 
And we've seen that time and time again when it, Murphy's Law is not on our side. We often think Murphy's Law is never on our side. But in reality, when Murphy's Law is on our side, it's called getting lucky. But we don't assign it luck. We like, hey, we did it. All our, our, uh, our act was together on this one. It was a success. When really, a lot of times we just got lucky. The adversary decided he wasn't going to, you know, uh, wasn't fully committed. Or we just got lucky. Good luck does not equal good tactics. Uh, every time. And to get back to the, the concept of chance, this goes back to what we talked about in the last podcast. It's possible to commit no mistakes and still lose, right? That's not a weakness. That's life. That Just because we may have all of our ducks in a row, we may have everything on, on the board the way we want it to look, and we have all the training and the best people, sometimes just a bad day. And, you know, we'll always look at these things with the perspective of, you know, 2020 hindsight, but sometimes chance just is not on our side. And it's important to, if not understand it at the very least, even embrace that and say, you know, we've stacked the deck in our favor as much as we can with all the things we've talked about leading up to this, you know, your training, your expertise, the training expertise of your people having, you know, your goals and missions aligned, all these things, but Sometimes it's just, you know, you draw the wrong card and it's a bad day. We can't control every aspect. But again, as we talk about chance and we talk about fog and we talk about risk, we still have to do our job, right? And there are certain things that we can't walk away from. And it's important that we are able to navigate each of these different issues, um, acknowledge them, prepare for them as best we can, and then work past them so we can do the job that, that we're entrusted to do. And we can do, we can do everything right and still have a bad outcome. And that's important. That's important for us to remember because we can get sucked into this uh, TV mentality where we can solve this problem in 45 minutes with commercials and uh, everything's going to be just fine. Now, Chris already brought up friction and uh, it's the force that resists all action, but I wanted to I wanted to read something, and I know this isn't books on tape, but I I can't say it any better than this, so I, I want to read it. Friction may be the audience know what tape is. That's a good point. Uh, Google it. Friction may be psychological, is when a commander becomes overwhelmed by the amount of risk, or when chance favors the suspect. It may also be self induced, such as when a commander suffers from indecision, fear of failure or lack of a clearly defined goal. It can also be physical, as when the suspect succeeds in some endeavor or the commander encounters an obstacle. Only a commander who has experienced the disappointment and frustration of trying to read in darkness or rain, or attempted to control a situation with a broken radio, can truly appreciate the impact that physical obstacles have on emotional feelings and mental attitude. Thus, friction will always have a psychological as well as a physical impact. Like fog, friction is unavoidable and is present in every tactical encounter. Not much else to say, right? He, he, he said it pretty well. But think about that. Is it uh, The thing to remember is these characteristics of a crisis impact our adversary. And while we always focus on ourselves and how they're happening to us and how to reduce that effect on our operation, remember that it's happening to our adversary as well. 
And that's why these events are time sensitive. It's the third characteristic of a crisis. Um, the uh, event involves uh, unique and temporary circumstances. And uh, if there's an adversary that's involved, uh, these incidents can become time competitive. You're looking at trying to uh, make decisions and forcing that adversary to react to your decisions instead of vice versa. And it gets into that's Boyd's uh, OODA cycle. Um, observe, orient, decide, and act. Who can make those decisions uh, to create a favorable outcome? And oftentimes we're reacting to the suspects. Until we gain the initiative. I like your segue there. Uh, I like your segue. Um, but let's talk a little bit about exploiting. Let's go back to what you said real quick. Before we move on to what initiative is. In a conflict, the opponent who can most quickly exploit the circumstances to their benefit gains the advantage. And a great example of that is something simple, right? You've got a suspect in a house. Officer pulls up, suspect sees, and bolts out the back before we can set up a perimeter or a helicopter can get overhead or air support, whatever the case may be. He's able to exploit that OODA cycle, right? He sees the officers. They're out of position to go and engage or contain that suspect. The suspect gets away. Or now we're, we're in a foot pursuit or something along those lines. That's a, a simple example of you know, the suspect in this case having the initiative, especially if they're prepared for our arrival. We've seen this, saw a terrible example of this in Phoenix last week where a number of officers were shot, right? The suspect essentially seized the initiative and, and just an awful ambush attack, right? So it, it can have small consequences like a suspect bailing out the back door will eventually get that suspect or something catastrophic like we just saw. Um, the, this element, it's always present. Yeah, and as we get into initiative, uh, the, the one thing I wanted to read was time or opportunity neglected by one adversary is exploited by the other. The aggregate resolution of these episodes will eventually determine the outcome of the conflict. In a tactical operation, this concept is called the initiative, the freedom to think and act without being urged. And that, that's what we're talking about. So if you want to Talk about why we need to take the offensive, why we need to do something other than stand around and hope that it works out, is because time is competitive. And we need to seize that time, that OODA loop, to gain compliance or use the least amount of force possible to bring about a peaceful resolution by taking and maintaining the initiative. And even if you're not on the offensive, you need to start obstructing the suspect's ability to do whatever he or she wants to do. You have to start changing their environment. You have to make them react to you. Go ahead, it's good. I'm, I'm taking notes while you guys are talking because I'm, I'm learning, uh, I'm learning, listening to you as well. So uh, one thing that strikes early on in my career, I remember hearing um, the phrase that time is on our side. And I don't know if that's something you guys have ever heard or not. And it wasn't anything I fully really understood how dangerous that phrase is until I started reading this book. And if you're controlling and manipulating uh, the time, and one thing that uh, Marcus taught me early on, I don't know who he stole it from, because he certainly couldn't come up with this on his own, but that time is like an accordion that it can be compressed, or that it can be pulled out. And if you're controlling um, the time, then time could be on your side. 
but if you're using that as kind of going back to where you're you're um, allowing the fog or that uncertainty or the overwhelming risk to dictate uh, your tactics which is hey the time is on our side we're going to sit and wait that like you said well marcus that uh that decision to do nothing is is also a decision um that can be dangerous and it's kind of counter to being able to seize the initiative and, and interrupt the, the loop as, as you guys are, are hitting on so there's just some some notes that i was jotting down and thinking through um and trying to apply in my own my own life while you're talking so thanks for hitting on that one thing i misspoke about that i probably need to correct is initiative is not necessarily movement it's the freedom to movement so it's the freedom to carry through with your plan your plan may be no movement and that's okay so i'm not i'm not saying you you have to be on the offensive i'm saying you have to have the freedom to be able to carry through with your plan and and to to, to provide better clarification on that it's the freedom of action. Sometimes initiative is better gained by allowing conditions to develop where circumstances are more favorable for exploitation. So it's understanding the principles at play and using them to your advantage. That's the true example of initiative. It may not, it's the ability to take action when necessary or not, but you're not reacting to the suspect. You're, you're in control of the events by manipulating time and terrain. And to go back to Brent uh, talking about the accordion, uh, that's when I was going through a phase where I made him call me the magic man all the time from Step Brothers. Um, but we do talk about speeding up and slowing down time, right? And we do that through tempo and density and how fast and how slow we do these things is a way that we manipulate time. And everybody has already experienced this inherently in their job in law enforcement, because when we get there to this emergency, there's some swarming, there's some self-deploying, but at some point we start wrapping our arms around this thing. We start having containment and less lethal and long rifle and react or crisis entry team, or whatever you call it. And then we start gathering our information and our intelligence. That's that tempo, that speed up, slow down, speed up, slow down. At some point as the leader, whether you're a sergeant, an officer, or deputy, you have to seize the ability to control that time from the suspect. So I just kind of want to, I felt like I didn't say that very well. And I wanted to clarify that. Any, anybody add on that? Oh, I, that? I think it's good. One, one thing that um, when you're talking about it, going back to the top of the page, it talks about um, some of these issues can have when there's a lack of a clearly defined goal or an end state. So it strikes me that um, a lot of what we're talking about here can be mitigated by the commanders and, you know, ensuring that, that they've clearly articulated what their, their end state and that goal is. And then that kind of gets into exactly what you're talking about um, on just the freedom to be able to uh, make the decision one way or another. And, and I think it's important to go back to what you said, where the whole time is on our side concept is sometimes misused. Because to use the example of the suspect, certainly a solo suspect in a house, for example, if we're going to roll up and attempt to take that suspect into custody or to call him out, and you have a single officer roll up and call him out on a bullhorn and the guy bails out the back, clearly the suspect sees the initiative to escape. But if we comprise a plan where the officers got officers in the front, officers in the back, maybe you're covering you know, the front five and the back five, whatever the case may be, 
that then time becomes on our side more so because we've set up for success, right? The suspect's contained to that house. So we are maintaining the initiative by diminishing his ability to seize the initiative by bolting out of the house without consequence or unchallenged. That's the nuance in these, in these concepts that I think is so incredibly valuable, but it's also dangerous if you misquote them. Hey, time's on our side. Well, an active shooter, time is not on our side as gunfire is ringing out and people are being killed, right? So we don't necessarily want to delay our response as we gather more information. We've seen the response that, that works is not the same response as for a barricade situation or even a hostage rescue problem where the suspect is actively engaged in negotiations, things like this. So, so such important points to discuss and to make sure that we understand the details around them because when they're misused, they can misinform a commander, they can misinform a team and they can seriously derail what we're hoping to achieve in our end state. There's a yeah. couple different that in the next sentence when, when he says sometimes initiative is better gained by allowing conditions to develop where circumstances are more favorable for exactly. So there's two different levels in this, right? We have decision making at the command level, and then we have the opportunity for subordinates who are empowered to see the initiative. So a, a quick example is you're on a hostage situation. We'll just say it's a single family residence, and uh, negotiations are ongoing, you have a perimeter, and you see that you have suspect and hostage separation, and one of the perimeter units can move up to a window and extract that hostage and completely change the complexity of that problem. Uh, that window of opportunity may close if they have to go through a cycle of, uh, like, mother may I. So if your subordinates have a clear understanding of what the mission is, and you have the trust of your commander, um, through familiarity and repetitions and understanding what their uh, implied and explicit intents are and the gravity of the situation, those are the opportunities that need to be seized. And those, those windows of opportunity are fleeting. And those are the ones that are uh, often missed. And it could be it, you know, changing the direction of two opposing crowds in a, in a crowd control situation. It could be, you know, uh, recognizing shifting winds and moving uh, incident command post at a hazmat incident. There are lots of sometimes subtle uh, decisions or changes can be made that will you know, shift the course of actions. But if there's um, that that sequence of hey, here's what I got, this is what I'd like to do, and then getting confirming uh, details. And a second opinion, and then consulting the magic eight ball, and then you know giving a, a yes or no, all while there's conflicting radio traffic and and you know other friction that occurs during these events, those opportunities are lost, and and that's what needs to be uh, seized upon in these climate sensitive crises. Yeah, and we're talking about the characteristics of crisis. Just we're just going through those. It's uh, there's a lot of things you can sidetrack on this, and one at least I want I want your the group's opinion on here. Windows of opportunity. So, with the new use of force legislation in California, and some of the strict wording uh, in that, windows of opportunity uh, often are misconstrued as you cannot take advantage of them. Right, the suspect is not actively committing a violent crime uh, currently so can we intervene 
And, and I would argue, yes, you can. That's because you understand these concepts that this is still an ongoing crime and I need to be able to take advantage of this window of opportunity, which will allow me to use less force to resolve the incident. Does that make sense? You guys ever, ever heard anybody kind of argue about, well, it's a window of opportunity, but with the new use of force laws, can I really still use force on this person when they're separated from the hostage? That's the characteristic of risk come to play. Like that creates doubt. You're unsure of what the actions are. And uh, this, as we talked about in the AB 392 podcast, the, you know, one of the factors is what is your jurisdiction like? You know, what, what is the community climate? Who's your uh, district attorney that's making decisions? Because their uh, positions may force decisions that are more restrictive or more permissive. And that's all part of the friction that comes in the environment in these crises. And it affects us. And that's where a lot of this can be mitigated is talking about this ahead of time. It's easy in tactical world to focus on, you know, shooting your standards on your M4 or shooting your pistol standards or working on crisis entry or tubular assaults, whatever. But the, the decision-making process is severely hampered by this friction that's caused by the ambiguity of some of these laws. So as we look at 392, as we look at some of the new legislation that's come down and that's actually being applied since January 1st, if we don't have a good understanding about those now and we don't have a good understanding with the executive of your department, whether it be a sheriff or a chief, and then your city attorney or district attorney or your county council, however it works, you're certainly selling yourself short. And we're seeing the consequences of that bear out I know you look at Austin, I think they had somewhere almost 20 officers were indicted for their actions during crowd control situations in the wake of the uh, events of 2020. So I, I think if we know about this stuff ahead of time, prepare our commanders and prepare our people, then they're ready to make the best possible decisions with the best possible information, right? We're, we're trying to take away some of that fog. We're trying to take away some of that uncertainty. We're, we're aware of the risk, but we also know the space that we can move in, right? Can we seize the initiative on this window of opportunity? Yes, we can. We're, we're good to go based upon the way the law is written and what, the advice we've gotten from the chief and our police legal and our district attorney's liaison or the district attorney him or herself. Um, that's all part of that pre-planning, right? We, we will rep out um, how a demonstration is expected to go or how a warrant service is planned on, on going. But we don't necessarily talk about what the legality is of these things enough. And now it's becoming more and more than just Graham Connor, Tennessee Garner. I mean, there's a lot more to it now, certainly in the state of California, that we need to be really up to date on and on top of. And remember when we talked about AB 481, military equipment policies, a lot of jurisdictions didn't even know this was a thing. And, you know, you talk about 48 and 98 and some of the new legislation. A lot of these agencies, you know, they're just becoming aware of it now that it's hitting the news. And it's been in effect since the beginning of the year. Marcus, yeah. thanks, uh, thanks for bringing that up. I, I agree with you completely, Adam. And I don't want to miss an opportunity for us to talk about Penal Code Section 835A um, when we start getting to these, these portions where you're talking about windows of opportunity. It's important to to seize them, but I think it's equally important to be to understand, specifically in uh, deadly force applications, that there is another component to that, and that is what's outlined in 835A about 
imminent. And I want to I want to read it here because I don't think we're talking about this um, enough is that a threat of death or serious bodily injury is imminent when based on the totality of the circumstances, a reasonable officer in the same situation would believe that a person has the present ability, opportunity and apparent intent to immediately cause death or serious bodily injury to the police officer or another person. The second part is also very important. An imminent harm is not merely a fear of future harm. No matter how great the fear and no matter how great the likelihood of the, of the harm, but is one that from appearances must be instantly confronted and addressed. That's a lot, but for those of you who are actually listening to this, take the time to read that and read it again and read it again and read it again and figure out the situation and the circumstances that you are going to before you seize that window of opportunity. Does it fit within this definition of imminent? And you're right, it's all about what it looks like in your jurisdiction, but if you're not prepared to be able to articulate this, you're putting yourself in a very bad position. So uh, thanks for asking that. And and I don't know if that's what you were driving at, but when you asked that, that's exactly what it, it, uh, it meant to me. The pre-incident preparation, the training has to go just beyond discussions. You have to, and this is at the incident command level, the team leader level and at the individual officer or deputy level, you have to make decisions when you're faced with a dilemma. Uh, you when you have two or more alternatives that are like equally undesirable, which one's bad and which one's worse. You have to try and make the best choices under those circumstances, knowing all those factors are. And when you're trying to do it under the stress of the incident, when you're on the X, uh, you have uh, diminished likelihood if you're not uh, diminished likelihood of success if you haven't properly prepared ahead of time. Yeah, thank you, Brian. I just wanted to bring that up because sometimes people shrug off windows of opportunity and, and I don't think they're gone. I think the law allows us for that. We just have to understand it. And what you just read is the ruler, right? So I don't, I don't, I think we struggle with that at my shop, at least. We're not training officers to write that, to articulate that. We have to interview them to kind of get that out of them. And we gotta, we've gotta do better, quite frankly, that's the law, right? And it always takes a little while for our, our profession to kind of adapt to that. Cause I think most of the time we're making the right choices. We're just maybe not articulating well. Let's go back to, we went on a sidetrack there but I thought it was an important one. And since I'm the host, then we had to talk about it. So uh, let's talk about the human dimension. Right. So that's one of the, the characteristics of a crisis, because interventions are always human activities, characteristics such as training, experience, maturity, emotion, prejudice and discipline deeply affect individual and collective efforts, because the most fundamental factor in conflicts is the irreconcilable disagreement between a suspect and lawful authority. These situations are especially susceptible and will be inflamed and shaped by human emotions and personalities. So we're recognizing all these other factors are going to come into play. It's not internal. It's not just looking at your own personnel. It's internal and external. Uh, a lot of so if you think about the natural disasters and mechanical events, that human dimension is the victims, their families. Media, 
uh, everybody, you know, you have people that uh, don their emergency vest and, and break out their ham radio and uh, they respond. Um, they may or may not be part of any type of uh, official response, but they inject themselves into your problem. Uh, what you were just talking about with the preparation and training of the officers in your shop, that's part of that human dimension. Uh, the fact that you're dealing with people makes it a lot more complex. I really like this part. As a matter of fact, I didn't highlight it, at least in this particular version of Sound Doctrine that I have. Uh, but any doctrine that attempts to reduce tactics to ratios of forces, weapons, or equipment neglects the impact of the human will on the conduct of the operation and is therefore inherently flawed. So I, I just want to say that again, because I think we do this to ourselves in this profession. Not only do people that don't understand the principles at play during these tech conflicts when they get reviewed or quarterbacked or we have a bad outcome, but even do it to ourselves with our experts. Any doctrine that attempts to reduce tactics to ratios of forces, weapons, or equipment neglects the impact of the human will on the conduct of the operation and is therefore inherently flawed. Hey, looking at our crowd control responses from 2020, great example of this on both sides. I mean, if you want to get historical, you can go all the way back to the Battle of Thermopylae, right? You're talking about 300. You got 300 Spartans holding off an onslaught of, you know, thousands, tens of thousands. And that's that's a perfect example of that. You know, the movie illustrates that beautifully when obviously so does the book. But, you know, whether it's crowd control, whether it's a barricade suspect, you know, where you've got 80 SWAT operators and you got one guy inside, you know, well, the odds should be in our favor. Well don't discount the X factor or chance or, you know, Chris Dorner is a great example. And I hate to use his name at all, but I think there's a lot to learn from, from that incident um, where, you know, you've got all of Southern California law enforcement after this person and he still wreaked havoc for a period of days and injured or killed far too many people in his wake. And so it's important for us to, not get too comfortable in our positions when we show up with a bear cat or we show up with snipers and everything else. We're stacking the deck in our favor by doing that, but that doesn't mean that the danger is non-existent or that success is all but guaranteed. In the words of Daryl Evans, the suspect gets a vote. Suspect gets a vote. So fifth, in the ever-changing and confusing environment of uncertainty, frustration, ambiguity, and risk. Tactical situations inevitably gravitate toward disorder. Each encounter in a tactical situation will tend to grow increasingly more complex and disordered over time. Since the situation continuously is changing, a commander is forced to improvise again and again until the final actions may have little resemblance to the original scheme. So that goes back to no plan survives first contact. And if we don't manipulate these things to our advantage, they will further become more complex and the disorder will increase, right? And that's kind of, part of that's that self-deployment, part of that's that fog and friction, um, definitely due to, to inaction or the situation, we've all been involved in those operations that had their own momentum. And once that friction is overcome and we're moving all our chess pieces out onto the board, 
it's very hard to stop and move them and change directions, not just physically, but emotionally and politically. And anyone who's had to shut down an operation or, or dramatically change the direction that we're going in an operation uh, knows that it's not usually an easy discussion to have in the command post in the trunk of a car or the, the hatch of a, an SUV to say, hey, we're going to change directions. We're not doing that now. It's, it's, it's hard, the friction of just moving and stopping the momentum, but the emotion of, well, I don't, I don't want to change. I want to you know, go through with this plan, right? So any other thoughts on, on that particular part? I know Sid goes on here, talk a little bit about contemporary problems, densely populated urban areas, um, heavily armed gang members, which, you know, suspects are often armed as good or better than we are. I Nothing think else? when you talk about gravitating towards disorder, a lot of that on incidents can be mitigated by a strong commander. You're talking about the voice of command, the focus of effort, the main effort. I know we get into that in chapter three, but you, you see this specifically at active shooter events where you do have that self-deployment and everybody's looking for work when you don't have a voice of command, when you don't have a focus of effort. Everybody's looking to put in work, but we don't really know what that looks like. So everybody's taking on whatever tasks they think need to be done when if a commander says, hey, no, the, the first priority, stop the killing. Second priority, stop the dying, right? Number one, stop the shooting. And number two, save as many people as you can. And if we focus all the inbound resources on that, the chance of success increases as opposed to people setting up traffic control three blocks away or reunification position when the shooting is still going on, things like this. That's where that entropy or that chaos really starts to amplify and cascade versus you have a commander and you may only have five or six people in your city and they're responding. And then you've got mutual aid, neighboring cities or jurisdictions pouring in. If you have a sergeant or a lieutenant or even a senior officer, here's the folks of effort, here's what we're doing, and here's where we're jumping off from, that, that amount of chaos is going to diminish significantly, right? Because we are part of the problem. We're part of the equation. So if we can control what we are doing or bring a little bit of order to our side of the chaos, you're reducing that chaos by almost 50%, right? We're dealing with the chaos the suspects and the victims and survivors and everybody else. But if we can reduce the chaos on the law enforcement response side, we're setting ourselves up for success, right? We're reducing the chances that chance is going to deal us a bad hand if we're setting ourselves up for success. If we're trying to stack the deck in our favor with a strong commander, with a focus of effort, with an effort on or the main effort, right? Who's doing what and what are we trying to accomplish? Something as simple as that can bring a lot of order to a chaotic situation when you have a lot of inbound resources. Yeah, you're, you're talking about that self-induced friction, right? We induce right. our own friction, right? And, and uh, the high-performing teams don't, don't induce a lot of friction. Chris, you had, before we end, uh, you had one more thing you wanted to share, kind of that you were integrating into your thought process about this from the edge of chaos. We can uh, hold on to that for the uh, command and control part because uh, I think it's going to fit in there a little bit better and it'll be a little uh, foreshadowing of we'll talk about uh, chapter three and four. So uh, before we go, I thought I would like to, if it's cool with you guys, I'd like to end on his final thought. That is 
This characteristic of disorder is even more striking in light of the duty of law enforcement to restore order. Indeed, restoring order in a tactical situation is like gravity to a space shuttle. It is an unyielding and omnipresent force that resists any effort to the contrary. A haphazard, superficial approach is as useless as attempting to overcome gravity. It is only by a strong and coordinated effort that this force can be overcome. I thought that was a great, just a great reminder that we have the tools available to us. And the goal here is to restore order. But in order to do that, we're going to have to overcome this inertia of disorder. And, and it, it's going to need a strong and coordinated effort to bring that about. So I thought that was a kind of a, a great way to end that chapter uh, to remind that this isn't easy, that you're not going to, it's that you can stack the deck in your favor but there's definitely things that are going to be opposing your will the entire time. So it's not going to be a one, two, three procedure. It's going to take a lot of inertia to overcome the disorder and the, and the, and the fight the will of the adversary when it comes to conflicts. Any last thoughts? That everybody experiences different degrees of these five characteristics when they're especially in a command position uh, when they're dealing with a crisis. So you're not alone with this and it never goes away completely. Uh, there's constant dimensions that are changing. They're unique and it shouldn't be a hindrance to decision-making and uh, action. And again, got to reiterate the pre-incident preparation. Um, be challenged early on uh, so that you're prepared and more importantly, uh, the people that you lead are prepared uh, for these incidents when they occur. Yeah, the magic, the magic is in pre-event preparation, right? The the more we prepare, the smoother our response is, and the less friction it is. And if you look at it like uh, other tactical problems, like athletics, it's in the preparation. So by the time the contest takes place it's not as hard as the practice and that's where you reduce that friction. And unfortunately with struggling budgets and personnel and, and the fact that we're talking about incidences that are less than 10% of everything else that we do, that's always, always going to be a struggle. And the first episode you hit on it, the, the, the good decision makers, um, they get promoted early and then they stop getting reps on these uh, low frequency, high risk incidents. And then those skills start to atrophy and they haven't passed on what they know to the next level of leadership and all the way down to the you know, most junior officer or deputy responding because they have so many other responsibilities that they're doing. Uh, it, it's not an excuse to hide behind when one of these critical incidents happens. It's, it's a, a burden and a responsibility of leadership. You have to prepare your subordinates for this. You know, when you ask about final thoughts, those are exactly mine, Chris. It's very well said. I say it um, a lot, but I want to thank you guys for helping shape uh, my thoughts in these um, in these areas, because uh, in preparing for it, I'm, I'm reading through it and getting to hear you guys talk about what that practically and actually looks like um, is it's great training for me and constant uh, development for me. So thank you guys for um, your time 
and for your thoughts and and uh, your professionalism and for helping to educate uh, me on these on these topics. It's a it's a great time investment for me. So thank you. Yeah, agreed. Exactly the same. I mean, we're the, what's the quote? The most formidable warriors are students of the profession and. I think everybody who remains a student of the work, I mean, you can go back to the book over and over and over again. You can go back to these after action reports and you're going to see something different, you know, every time you read them. And that's what helps keep us sharp. You might not get the reps in operationally, depending on where you work, or what your assignment is, but you can still keep your mindset right and stay up to date on what's working and what's not. And then talk with your people about it. Talk with your bosses about it because there's so many things competing for our attention a lot of times this stuff falls to the wayside and it's at our, at our own peril. Yeah. Great point. All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you very much. That was sound doctrine part two, where we just kind of went over uh, the points of chapter two. Again, uh, this is really where a lot of the science um, from field command is broken down to people like Brent and I, so we can understand it better, but this is, the science behind tactics, right? And this is what this is what Cato is dedicated to, is here's the science and the art is in how you apply that science. So uh, we are obviously huge fans of Sound Doctrine and uh, we believe that it lays the foundation or framework for better decision-making and better understanding of the crisis or tactical situations that we find ourselves in. So thank you all for your time. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.